Today we are looking at verses 15 to 20. And so let's read that. Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart and that you would illumine us to see you, to know you. Lord, Apart from your work among us today, this, this is just a, a human practice to come and to sit, to stand and to worship. Um, we can go through the motions. We need you to do this work. So continue to move among us and instruct us and change us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When we were living in Cyprus, we had a a friend who was an elder in the Greek evangelical church where we attended. His name was Theologos. And he was, uh, had a ministry, the only Christian radio station in the nation. Uh, And the story of that uh, station was really incredible to hear the way the Lord had provided and cared. I mean, it really should not have existed. Uh, But God... Uh, for his own reasons, had worked and moved and had used Theologos and his, his wife Chrysos to um, not only start the radio station, but uh, for it to remain and be effective. When we left, they had us up to their um, mountain retreat for a little afternoon celebration, goodbye kind of thing. And uh, there, no words can describe this place. Um, my words will fail to describe this place, but Theologos was the right man for the job in the sense that he could build anything, create anything, fix anything. He was just incredibly mechanical, electronic, just everything that you could think of in that sphere he could do. And so this place that he had built, uh, we might call rustic, but he had this elaborate, well, he had multiple elaborate systems of electrical things and water. I mean, he had everything he needed. But if any of us walked into this place, none of us, one, could figure it out. Uh, none of us could certainly fix it. It was his own kind of brainchild. And he had uh, gotten different pieces of equipment from electrical companies and phone companies when they had gotten rid of it. Some he got for free, some he didn't pay anything for, and he had put it all together and somehow it worked. And he was able, his, his wife had a little kitchen that she could, she had appliances and stuff that worked from this electricity. And there was no power into the mountains there. It was all what he had developed. He even had this generator, it was like something from the 50s, we would call vintage, 
somebody didn't want anymore, and he had converted it to run on biodiesel, so it smelled like french fries when it ran. And he had worked the power from the lower part up to the upper part. He was just incredibly gifted. Well, the thing with Theologos is it was his. He had built it. He had created it in a sense. And so he not only understood it and could explain it to you, even if you're like me and don't have a mechanical ounce in your uh, bone in your body, he could, he could make sense of it because it was his. And not only could he explain it and not only could he make it work, but when it broke, he could fix it because it was his. He made it. He was the creator of this system, something that would blow our minds. In his mind, it all worked. And although that analogy fails in comparison to the God of the universe and the creator of all things, God is the creator of all things. He not only knows it because he made it all, he knows every one of us, but he also has the power to fix it. And so as we look today on Reformation Sunday, I could easily have called the sermon um, Christ Alone, you know, one of the five solas, but I'm sticking with names of Christ for each sermon as we go through Colossians. Uh, but the theme is, is the supremacy of Christ. Again, we've seen this. It's the theme of Colossians. And today, the sermon titles, Creators, Sustainers, still doesn't capture all that is in these six verses. These are extremely rich verses. But we still see the theme of the supremacy of Christ emerge. Now, when I say the supremacy of Christ, you might hear that and say that sounds like some kind of theological verbiage that has little meaning for your life. In other words, okay, Seth, but what difference does it make? Consider this. If Christ is the creator, and he is, then there is nothing that exists, past, present, or future, visible or invisible, that doesn't belong to him. Paul uses the word all seven times in these six verses, and he uses the word that translates everything, so that you could add that in, that's eight times. What is outside of all? Nothing. It's all his, right? And Paul is making this clear, again, using that word more than there are verses. You remember when we went through Acts, and he stood before the Areopagus in Athens, and he said, for in him we live and move and have our being. You cannot escape God's presence and realm. God is supreme as creator. But he's not only supreme as creator. He's, he's not some clockmaker who set it all up and then walked away. He is actively present and at work. He is the sustainer of all things as well. So consider this. If Christ is then the sustainer of all things, then nothing can happen outside of his will. Nothing can thwart his plans. Hebrews 1, as we read this morning, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The same word that spoke the universe into existence is the same word that governs our lives. And this is especially clear in his work of redemption and his role as redeemer. And he will complete the work that he started. So because he created all things, he knows how to fix it. And he has the power to fix it. And that's why it matters. Because we live in a broken world, in broken bodies, in broken, messed up systems and experiences and relationships. And God, the creator, is present and at work, and he knows how to fix it, and he has the power 
to do so. So whether it's the unexpected turns in our lives, and let me say, this past week was filled with unexpected turns. Some significant and some less than significant, but I kept coming back to this as I was studying this text, and I realized it definitely matters that God is not only creator, but sustainer of all things, that he holds together all of those unexpected things that happened that were beyond my ability to stop or prevent or control or change or fix or whatever. I know the God of the universe who has the power to do all of those things. It matters in the prospect of death and the death of loved ones. It matters in our successes and in our failures. It matters in our joys, and in our sufferings. Because Christ is the creator and the sustainer of all things, we can live in hope instead of despair, in peace instead of fear, in joy instead of grumbling, in light instead of darkness. Consider your life just this past week. Did any of those things emerge on the radar? You could fill in. That's not an exhaustive list. There's other things that you could plug into that. Did any of those things come up? In your life? Did you experience despair? Were you tempted by it? Fear? Anxiety? Grumbling? Come on, all you have to do is get out here and drive and experience some grumbling, right? You know? The supremacy of Christ lifts up from these temporal, physical, human responses that we have to an eternal perspective that He holds all things together and that he will reconcile all things to himself. That's what we see in this text today. And so let's look in verse 15 and work our way through. He is the image of the invisible God. If it didn't hit you as as we read this this morning, I would encourage you to to look at John's gospel, the first chapter of John. This sounds strangely similar. There's a lot of similarities between what John wrote and what Paul wrote here. And I encourage you, we, we don't have time to read that whole chapter this morning. But I would take you just to, to verse 18 of John 1, where he writes, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So John is declaring the deity of Christ here. And this summarizing verse that he ends this section with, verse 18, he says, No one's ever seen God. The only God, referring to Jesus, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known to us. Jesus brings to sight the God who is visible. He reveals Him. He makes Him known. This could literally read, Jesus is the exegesis of God. Exegesis is the explanation. It's what we do every week when we come to look at Scripture. We look at it, we unfold it, we explain it. Jesus does that for the invisible God. Later in John's Gospel, in chapter 14, Jesus' own, own, own words, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The similar expression we read this morning in Hebrews 1, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Keep in mind what Paul is dealing with here in Colossae. The Gnostics had come in, they were teaching false teaching that basically Jesus was a great place to start, but you really needed to move on and understand more, you needed more enlightenment, but also that God had not actually created the world in which we live. The Gnostics taught that God 
because matter was sinful, God could not even approach matter, and so he had used levels of emissaries to create the universe. So he really had nothing to do with it. He was so far removed. And so Paul undoes this entire idea by saying that Jesus reveals God. He is the image of God. In other words, he's not far off. He comes all the way and enters into creation. And Paul is going to go on to show that, that Jesus not only reveals God, Jesus is God in the coming sentences. But before we get there, let me mention one other thing, this whole idea with the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You and I were created in the image of God. Don't miss the connection here. That you and I were created, designed to be like Jesus. That's, that, that's, that's exactly what you were made for. And it's therefore the only place where you will ever find fulfillment is in Christ, in your Savior. It not only sets the standard, the archetype for who we are and what we are, but it allowed God to enter into creation. F.F. Bruce notes, because he, we were created in the image of Christ, he could become incarnate as man, and that in his humanity display the glory of the invisible God. And that work then goes on, and we'll see this later in Colossians 3, to become the work of redemption in our lives, renewing us into the image of Christ. In other words, it's only in Jesus that you will be like him. And it's only when we are made like him that we are becoming who we were created to be. Now, we live in a world where people are pursuing fulfillment and satisfaction and meaning in so many things. And most of us in this room could tell our own stories of these failed experiences. This is what we were made for. We were made to be like Christ. Look back in verse 15. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, Paul uses this word twice in these six verses. And so it's important for us to understand what he meant, because as English speakers, what do you think when you read the word firstborn? You think he was the first to be born. Well, there's a problem with that. Jesus wasn't born. Jesus wasn't created. Now, he was born when he came into the earth, but he existed before then. Paul isn't saying that he was the firstborn and that he was the first of creation, but rather this is a title or a position, a description of his position as heir. Creation is his. He is first in place because of his role in the Trinity. But in, in these last days, Hebrews 1-2, another section that we, we looked at, this, this, we looked at the whole passage this morning in our reading. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed to the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. The Father, God the Father, gave Jesus the role of creator, but also as redeemer as well. Psalm 2.8, in looking ahead, said, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Christ is firstborn in position. He is the heir. And of course, Jesus' own words in John 8, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus existed before he came into the world. He with the Father 
and the Spirit is self-existent. One God in three persons. Now, his position in the Trinity, his role is that of creator and redeemer. And as such, he is the firstborn or heir of all creation. And as we'll see in verse 16, not only were all things created through him, but they were all created for him. That there is movement, there's purpose. The story of redemption is still unfolding. And because all things were created for him, we can then say with Paul that he is the heir or firstborn. It is all his. He possesses it. In verse 16, by him all things were created. This is how we know that he wasn't created. It was because the Father appointed him as creator. Paul could have stopped with this line, but he adds, in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. This is if Paul is saying, what I mean by all things is all things. (laughs) Everything. It's exhaustive. There's nothing, there's no exception. There's nothing left. And this was especially important, again, in confronting the Gnostic teaching, that God had to create the world through these emissaries or these lesser deities who created the actual material world. He's saying, as John said in his gospel, without him was not anything made that was made. Everything was made by him. And so, if you are Christ, then there's literally nothing to fear because everything is his. Everything. R.C. Sproul is quoted as saying, there is not one maverick molecule. Consider that. Not one maverick molecule. So we can look at a passage like Ephesians 4.6 and realize that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is over all and through all and in all. Look back at verse 16. All things were created through Him and for him. There's purpose. It wasn't just to have this nice little model or this little ant farm that he could watch through a looking glass. There was purpose in creation, and that purpose is unfolding, and you and I are a part of that story. All things were created through or in him. In other words, as John says in the beginning of of his gospel, he was in the beginning. And in Revelation 3, John gives him that name, the beginning. Paul attributes that name here in this passage, the beginning, to Jesus. And in Revelation 22, Jesus' own words where he said, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so all of creation, everything that exists, begins and ends with Jesus. It is in him and for him and toward him. And all creation is working toward that end with him as the center. That's why we exist. It's all for Jesus. So when we sing these songs and we talk about these things in church, this is why it matters. He's not just some set-aside thing that we admire from time to time. He gives us our meaning. He made us for himself. We tell the story of Scripture in the four parts, creation, fall, redemption, restoration or consummation. The end, that consummation, that restoring of all things could also be said as a recreation of all things. And that is what we are looking toward. That Christ who created all things is going to recreate all things and make all things new. And he is firstborn or heir in that recreation.
Verse 17, he is, before, <clears throat> he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Excuse me. The Gnostics were trying to teach the Colossians that Christ was simply, again, just a place to start, but you needed, you needed more knowledge, special knowledge, special enlightenment. And, of course, they possessed it, so what did that give them? Power, Okay. The Gnostic way of life and the Gnostic thing, we may not call it Gnosticism, but it's still around. This isn't, there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon would say. They, they said to live in this world, you needed more resources, more light. But how could they teach the, anything other than the sufficiency of Christ? Because look at what Paul says in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The God of the universe who holds it all together, is more than sufficient because he is the God of the universe who created all things. Colossians didn't need more resources. They simply needed Christ. There is no greater resource. Jesus is light. He is knowledge. Jesus is wisdom. He is peace. He is power. He is all the Colossians or anyone you or I could ever need. Christ is sufficient. So Christ is supreme and Christ is sufficient because he is the creator of everything that has been made. Everything is from him. He made it all. Everything is in him. He holds it all together. And everything is to him. All creation is moving toward that consummation that is in Christ. And that's what we see in verse 18, the new creation, the church. Christ is supreme in the church. He is the head. What is the church? Is it this building No, the church is the people of God, the elect from every nation, tribe, and tongue throughout all ages, God's people. Christ is the head of the body. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament where Paul uses this illustration of the body, he talks about how the body parts work together in giftedness. Here, he is talking about Christ's position in the new creation over the church as the head of the church. It's important for us to remember, not just for the new heavens and the new earth, and that is in the age to come, but this matters now. But it, because it, it's Christ who we look to as our head. You know, he's our leader. We are not to get our eyes off of him. We live in an age where we can have access uh, through books and media and uh, the best preachers, the best authors, the best speakers around. And we live in an age where we're enamored with celebrity. And so often people get their eyes off of Christ and they begin to put their hope in celebrity. Now, I'm not saying don't admire. I have people I admire. I have people I enjoy listening to and reading. But I can tell you, I've met a few of them. And every one of them have disappointed me. And guess what? If I was one of them, I'd disappoint people too because we're all sinners. But the danger beyond that, beyond just being disappointed, is this is how people are led astray. When we get our eyes off of Christ, don't put your hope in people. One writer says, when the church takes its mind and heart away from Christ and his words, human authority and tradition fill the vacuum. How dangerous is that? The ultimate consequences of this could be sterility rather than the constant increase in renewal that Paul goes on later to describe when he's talking about Christ's head in chapter 2, which we'll look at in a few weeks. He says, Christ, 
the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Christ is our head, not just in position and authority, but also as the source of nourishment by which we are fed. He is how we grow. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. There is a union that is at place. Jesus described this in John 15, where he says, I am the vine. And in verse 5, he says, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We are to be in Christ He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Again, we see the description of the beginning, the source. He is the the starting point, the archetype. And again, we see this word firstborn. Here it's linked to from the dead. Not meaning that he was the first to be resurrected, but that he was the heir of the resurrection. This is a positional description, again, like we saw in verse 15. His rank is first. And the... The, the, the readers at the time, the culture at the time, would not have had a problem. But we, we really don't have that in our own culture. I mean, you know, the firstborn might talk of being the firstborn, but we, there, there isn't the, the passing on in the same way that there was in this culture with all the rights and privileges. To be firstborn was to really be in a position uh, to inherit everything uh, and to have uh, all the power that came with it. So because his rank is first in the resurrection, we too have the hope of the resurrection. Because he is our head, his resurrected life becomes the source of nourishment. In other words, we get the resurrection power to live this life then because Christ is our head. And then Paul puts it all together and says in everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. This could easily be the theme verse not just of these six verses, but of the entire book of Colossians, that in everything he might be preeminent. Paul is stretching and stressing and emphasizing the grandeur and the beauty and the majesty and the awesomeness of Jesus. In a world where everyone is on a constant quest to find something that is the best, only to wake up tomorrow and find out that there's something now better, Jesus really is the best. He is preeminent in everything. And so as we look in verse 19 and 20, we see this in the work of redemption. And this is where it comes home. Because Christ is preeminent in everything, and He is sufficient in all His ways and works, then He is also sufficient and supreme in redemption. And this is especially meaningful to us because of our sin. We have a problem. We are sinners. And we can't undo it. We can't fix it. But Jesus is God with us, God incarnate, who put on flesh. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, Paul writes. Think of the story of redemption. In Eden, God walked, he dwelt with Adam and Eve until sin interrupted that relationship. And then everything was off kilter. And God's interactions with mankind were rare and unique. Now, when we look at them in Scripture, it, we, we read them all together. It seems like God was always showing up, but there were long periods of time, and He only showed up to one or two people sometimes at times. People longed to hear from God, and He gave them. He gave them His people, Himself, in small ways. The pillar of cloud and fire as they left Egypt and went through the wilderness. 
He then gave them the tabernacle and later the temple wherein the people could meet with him and he with them. But there was still a separateness, a distance. There was that holy place only the priest could go and the most holy place that only the high priest could go and he only one day a year. But in Jesus, God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us, fully God and fully man. And now he dwells in each of our hearts through his spirit. He is not far off. He is close. And this was completely counter to all that the Gnostics were trying to teach. Christ is not only with us, though, he is also for us. Think of the difference that that makes. It would be one thing if God was with us but wasn't for us. But it's a whole other thing to think that God is not only with us, but he is for us. The one who is the highest rank and position, the firstborn, the one who is the greatest and most purely supreme, he is preeminent in all things, fully God and fully man, is with you and for you and reconciled you to God. He bought us from death. He made peace as our mediator between God and us, and he did it by the blood of his cross. And so when you doubt your worth, when you doubt that your life matters, when you wonder when the pain will end, when you question whether joy can be yours or fear will ever vanish, know this, Jesus is for you. And you have to look no further than the cross. Look at the blood shed on the cross. The one who was the highest, the most supreme, went to a bloody and humiliating death for you to make peace for you. And so we can say, and we can sing together with the angels in heaven, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Jesus, no words of ours could ever ascribe to you your majesty and your worth. But would you peel back our eyes to see just a glimpse through the words of Scripture of who you are and what you've done for us. And I pray that each of us would get that glimpse today. I pray especially if there's anyone here who does not know you, does not trust you, that you would open the eyes of their heart and show them your beauty and your grandeur, and you would draw them to saving faith even today. And Lord, I pray that as we go from here, that it would indeed make a difference in our lives that you are the creator and you are supreme in all of creation, but that you are also sustainer that you are fixing everything. I pray that it would make a difference in our lives and all that we have on us and all that we are bearing. Would you strengthen us by the word of truth today? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.